This podcast is brought to you by Airbyte, the product and growth studio available at startup prices. If you're struggling with designing, building, or growing your vision, Airbyte may be the perfect partner. Learn more at airbyte.co.uk. Airbyte, building digital products with growth in mind. Very truthfully, um, whilst I was at university in the first year, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which is uh, you walk into the neurologist's office, they've done a brain scan, they've done a lumbar puncture, and then they tell you, you might drop dead in the next six months, or you're going to be dilapidated in the next kind of three years, which isn't what you want to hear when you're 19 years old. So that came as a bit of a shock. And I guess that's really what, what wanted me to strive and achieve a bit more. That's really kind of where the ambition became a bit more of an ambition because you probably think you've got time against you as well. From Airbyte, this is Growth in Mind, a podcast about the stories behind the high-growth startups and small businesses that are starting to make waves in the world. I, James Farfield, speak with the founders and entrepreneurs about their personal and professional lives and how they intertwine to lead to building successful businesses today and how growth has been a part of who they are or who they have become. On today's episode, we have Suleiman Sakrani of the GP Service. The GP Service offers a digital solution to accessing doctors and pharmacies all over the UK. Founded in 2014, Suleiman and his team have continued to grow year on year to an impressive valuation between 40 and 50 million in 2021. Suleiman grew up in Leicester with his father owning a local store. Being around his father, whose day-to-day was being his own boss, certainly had an impact on Suleiman, who wanted to run his own business from an early age. But for him, it was all about scale. Age 19, Suleiman was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and was told that he could lose his life tomorrow or at best three years down the line after a visit to his doctor. Barely into his university life, the diagnosis rocked him and he struggled with physical and mental stress. Two years into uni, and there was no stopping Suleiman, however, He left the university books behind and started his own business. Not the GP service though, but a different company, the 99p Shopper. Finding a way to halt his disease was a mission in itself for Suleiman, but his drive was unwavering in his business ambitions and has spent his career focused on striving for growth. You say yourself confess ambitious, driven, where do you think that came from? I guess it came from when I, I, it was always there. But I think it really came when I started when I started at university and I realized this thing really isn't for me sitting in a lab trying to do something that I don't enjoy and then knowing full well that this is something I want to have to do for the rest of my life in a in an employment environment. And I just knew that wasn't going to be me. And it, I, it felt like I was eating glass more than anything. That I was doing something for the sake of doing it rather than for myself. And that's when you kind of realize that what is it that I want to do? And that's where I really was able to try and learn more about myself and I I do genuinely believe university is a great place to start that journey because you've got no commitments got a lot of free time um, and it's a great kind of environment to really let you find yourself if that kind of makes sense. Mm, I completely agree and you you second and third what other entrepreneurs I've spoken to say that entrepreneurship is the best breeding ground for entrepreneurship Uh, you went to the University of Leicester quite close to home studying chemistry why chemistry? Uh, it, it wasn't something I wanted to do. Coming from a kind of Asian family background, it's usually you're a doctor, dentist or pharmacist or a lawyer. Uh, I didn't have the grades to become a doctor. Didn't want to become a pharmacist. This, the best thing that wouldn't wouldn't give me a, uh, wouldn't actually put me into a field that I wanted to, but give me a barrier would probably be chemistry. And I think it was just a chosen subject because I was probably 
better at that than most other things. Um, so it wasn't something that I genuinely enjoyed. I think it's it's that kind of uh, pressured environment you come from. Mm. And, and were you a good student at school? Were you in the library? Were you sporty? No, I wasn't actually. So I, I wouldn't say I was a bad student, but I don't think I was a good student. I wasn't, I wasn't one of those kind of naturally gifted students. But one thing I realized, I wasn't very, um, very smart when it came to theoretical exams, but I was very, I was very able when it came to practical uh, work. And I think that's what entrepreneurship is. Get started, get going, make your mistakes, learn from them and go from there. And I think that's really the kind of foundation that I realized what I was. I'm not a process orientated, driven individual. I don't follow processes, which is quite bad, but I like to make my own mistakes and then go from there. And I think a lot of that has come from what I've gone on to do in life. You find yourself at university. Um, you studied, as I said, chemistry. What point did you decide, right, this, this next step is for me, this career step is for me? Talk to me about that transition leaving uni. Sure, sure. So the transition was quite interesting for me. So whilst I was at university in my first year, um, um, I guess on a personal level, I wasn't feeling too good at the time. Um, I was having some severe kind of pains in my leg and my back and stuff. So I was missing a lot of university at the same time. Um, and um, I knew something wasn't quite right. But at the same time, I, want, I was quite ambitious. I wanted to start something. So um, fast forward a few months into university, um, I realized the space that I really wanted to drive into was the food and drink market because I know that market quite well. So I wanted to launch an online version of Ocado, but on the 99p scale, because I knew the pound stores at this stage were doing really well. So I thought, you know what, how, how great it would be to have an online kind of 99p store um, and then really get that going and get that live. Um, it was easier said than done. A lot of things happen in between that time, as we can go into detail on. But from there, I was able to launch the UK's first kind of online 99p store. That scaled very, very quickly and um, became quite a large um, entity in itself. Mm, yeah, fascinating. And I think we'll definitely touch upon that um, later on in this podcast. But jumping back to what you said earlier, you were struggling um, with your health uh, going at university. That must have been a pretty tough time mentally and, of course, physically dealing with that. Yeah, it was actually. So um, very truthfully, um, whilst I was at university in the first year, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, um, which is uh, you walk into the neurologist's office, um, they've done a brain scan, they've done a lumbar puncture, and then they tell you, you might drop dead in the next six months, or you're going to be dilapidated in the next kind of three years, which isn't what you want to hear when you're 19 years old. Uh, so that was that came as a bit of a shock. Um and I guess that's really what, what wanted me to strive and achieve a bit more. Um, so I guess that's really kind of where the ambition became a bit more of an ambition because you probably think you've got time against you as well. Yeah, I mean, at the age of 19, you must have been shell-shocked with, with that news. How, do, how did you even start to process that to then get back on, as you said yourself, such an ambitious and driven track? Yeah, I think one thing I'm, I one thing I've always been a my uh, one thing I've always kind of taken life with, with which is you just take things head on. So for me, it was just here we go. It's just another barrier, another another bump, um, and you just got to get over it. Um, I don't think I'm that kind of person that sits there feeling sorry for myself. It's just one of those things, and you just got to be you just got to be able to manage the situation, and you just got to do the best you can. And I think if you do that, there's nothing more you can do, and everything else is out of your control. I think once you accept that, you're halfway there, I guess. Mm. Yeah, what an amazing attitude to have. 
just excuse my naivety, after your diagnosis, is, is that still with you today to the extent of that you could just fall really ill at any point? Yeah, so fortunately, that's how kind of when we get into the story, that's how the GP service started, because the drug I'm on today from the States is not licensed in the UK. But I was after that drug uh, from the NHS, and I was not allowed because it's not clinically trialed in the UK. But I obtained it from the US, but my prescribing doctor was in Wales and could never get the prescription across to the pharmacy in Birmingham. So I developed the first kind of electronic private prescription tool, which is how the GP service kind of started and has evolved, evolved today. So I am on this treatment uh, from America called low-dose naltrexone. I've been on the drug for the last 10 years, and I've seen no progression on my condition since then, which is quite fortunate, actually. There may be the myth, which is it's just my own psychological thinking, but the MRI scans do not lie. Um, and that's kind of how, how I kind of um, go about my day-to-day. Yeah, that's amazing. And talking about day to day, does does it affect you on a day to day outside of uh, your mental health? To be honest, I, I just go by things as they come along, to be honest. Um, I don't really like to make excuses. And if something does impact me, you kind of just uh, you just sort it out as you go along. But, you know, I start work at nine, ten o'clock and I finish at nine, ten o'clock uh, at night. So it's I drive my startups very hard and uh and, you know, I think at the end result of building something innovative, launching something and scaling something and making a difference in this world is probably what makes you forget about anything else that's going on in the background. And I just think it's a bit of noise, to be honest. So. In terms of entrepreneurship, innovation, you were around it from an early age um, with your father running his own business. So that was something which stuck with you with the 99p venture. You wanted to be your own boss. Is that right? Yeah, I kind of got, yeah, it was always there, but I think I probably I realize it's a bit more tough, uh, tough enough to crack when you get started, just very high level. When I started 99P, trying to find a web developer, learning about servers and hosting and learning about all that kind of stuff, getting a website live, then realizing I've got the site live, now I've got to get stock and not having money for stock, then realizing that even once I've got product on there, now I've got to do marketing to get people to order you realize actually this is not a simple, straightforward journey. And you can you understand why a small proportion of the population go into entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I, that is something which we deal with um, pretty much with every client that we work with as well. So at the 99p shopper, you were there for best part of four years. Talk to me about that journey from sort of the challenges that you faced um, during those initial few years of really not knowing what you were doing. Yeah, so just uh, we'll go back from what I can remember because it was quite quite a while ago now. But uh, I do remember I came up with this idea and I go I went into my uh, parents' room one evening and I go I'm leaving university. I've I've come up with this great idea and uh, my father was very um, very uh, supportive. Uh, my mother was like, "What the hell's wrong with him? Has he gone mad?" Um, but I wanted to launch this concept, but then I realized as we got into it. Um, Building a website, you're getting quotes for 40 grand. And then I realized I haven't got 40 grand. I've got about 600 quid in the bank. Um, then I found a company, I think it was in Bangladesh, to build me version one. Um, then I realized, actually, after I've got the site live, I need to try and get some product on there. Couldn't get any product on there because I didn't have the money for product. After the product was on there, it was trying to get orders on there. It was all, it was all a bit too much. In the end, what I ended up doing was actually staying up with my brother for about three, four nights, and we uploaded every product on the Tesco website that was 99p and less onto our website for 99p to try and gain the traction first. And it all blew up after that, to be honest. That's where it really went a bit crazy. So, yeah, we ended up launching it. Um, 
we had prod we had stock in the house and this is no word of the no word of a lie but our bathtub our sh the kitchen and everything was full of stock it was um, my mother had absolutely literally just she just literally she, she couldn't she was like i can't take this anymore it was just getting too much um so that's really how 99p shopper started but as we started getting into the journey we realized that we'll never make any money here because if you think about an average order value of 30 pound you think about the profit margins of 20 percent, which means six pound an order it takes about 20 minutes to pack a box and get the you know all that kind of stuff you're not left with much money and that's where the journey kind of started to be a service provider and that's where the journey kind of led me to which is what my father used to do which is get up in the morning get in his van go to the local cash and carry um, pack it up with lots of stock and come back and unfill it so that's when we kind of launched um, a product service which was actually a deal service so it was like a deal of the day kind of concept where shopkeepers can come to the platform they get a text message with what deals we have of the day it's usually 50 60 percent cheaper than the cash and carry and it was actually um, a model that we launched in partnership with a company called Palm and Harvey at that time who were the UK's biggest delivered wholesaler how that journey actually happened we'll go into a bit of detail on but it was a uh, it was quite funny how this story about the relationship with Palmer and Harvey actually started in the first place itself. So. Yeah, so you transitioned away, well, you transitioned two or three times, really, moving away from um, sort of 99p store and realising that you just couldn't fit, finance it in any way, then kind of growth hacking together a Tesco solution and realising the margin wasn't there, to then moving to the deal of the day um was was deal of the deal of the day style 99p shopper was that was that the the one that made it so what happened in, in between all of that i was very fortunate i went to the excel center to the startup show and uh, met a, a a very um successful entrepreneur who ended up becoming my first angel investor in the business uh who i still work with today actually 10 15 years on um and uh, he invested the first seed round of capital into the business and what we then did was um, we changed the concept into a comparison engine, like a money supermarket, to compare the prices of all the all the cash and carries. And the idea of that was to give transparency transparency across the industry, um, to allow shopkeepers without getting in their van and spending three four days going around all the cash and carries to compare prices, to have that at their fingertips. As soon as we launched that, we had um, we had uh, legal letters from all the providers, including. Uh, all the cash and carries we were comparing, including Booker, Bestway, Farm and Harvey, all of them. Um, the Grocer magazine, which is the biggest magazine, um, did an article called, uh, they named, I think they did something about David V. Goliath or something along those lines. And it all blew up out of proportion. What then happened was, if I was sitting in the office one of the days, we'd taken an office off after, we came, after we'd raised our first round of seed funding. And I had a call from someone, and I still remember this call. It was just about to leave. It was five to five. And I had this call from this secretary and she goes, um, my name's Marina Kosha. I'm calling uh, from the chief executive's office of Palm and Harvey. Um, our CEO, Martin Ward, is in town and he would like to meet you. So I just couldn't make two cents of it at this stage. I didn't even realize who Palm and Harvey were um, for a second. Um, anyway, this guy comes in at six o'clock uh, and I'm just dismissing him because I was like, I don't even know who he is. Um, Turns out he's the CEO of a 4.5 billion pound gorilla and uh, he wants to try and find a way that we could work together and partner together or what we could do potentially. Um, and I've got I'm in my little office and I've got the CEO of a big mammoth gorilla 
that uh, now wants to potentially that's now around the table that wants to do something with what we're doing. So that's how it kind of started. It went one step further. Uh, even the team at Booker got in touch um, and the team there wanted to do something. We They came to the office and now we had all the big providers that were potentially suing me now actually wanting to partner. And it just it just it became something you only see in films, to be honest, the way this all kind of played out eventually. Yeah, did you did you ever find out how uh, the CEO of Palmer and Harvey went? Oh, I, I need to get in touch with Suleiman at the ninety nine P Shopper. I think I I never really uh, he's a really good friend of mine still because Palmer and Harvey no longer in business anymore. But uh, because I think Costco to acquired them, but um, we we meet up regularly, and I think it's still not it's still a conversation I never really brought up with him. But um, I think it must have been a lot of noise happening in the industry at the time, and I think if you search on Google you'll still find there's a lot of articles around what happened at that stage. So I think we really, we really at that point um, disrupted a market which was very controlled by its, by, by its suppliers and by its members, if that makes sense. And we really, what we were trying to do is provide transparency. And I think that's really what blew, blew up out of proportion in trying to achieve that. And when you try and do anything innovative, you're always going to have people on the back of you. And I think that's really what was shown in this, in this concept itself. So you started 99P Shopper in 2011, fast forward to 2014, um, and you stopped 99P Shopper. Why? 99P Shopper turned into, uh, it partnered with Palm and Harvey. Uh, so we did a deal eventually in 2011 with Palm and Harvey. It got rebranded to Mad About Deals. It became a deal of the day site. Um, P&H were distributing um, the just um, around 150 million worth of residual stock or something along those lines. So we became their technology partner for the deal of the day concept around that. And it basically became an integrated um, organization that started working with Palm and Harvey. And that's really how the business kind of uh, evolved as such. Hmm. And, and that partnership, I assume there was some sort of acquisition there. Did that put more than that £600 back in your back pocket um, in 2014? It, it, it did quite well in 2014, let's just say. It, uh, it it allowed me to do a lot more than I was doing before, and uh, it allowed me to really... It, it taken me through all the journey flows I didn't I'd never had and then allowed me to buy a nice car at the end of it as well. So that was quite nice. Amazing, amazing. And then winter 2014, the, the, the birth of the GP doctor, I assume... You had been thinking about this for a while. I had actually. So um, whilst I was, uh, I always said after 99P, if I'm successful in it, I will always do something in the health tech space. So the idea of the GP service was um, my prescribing doctor, who's unfortunately passed away now, Dr. Bob Lawrence in Swansea, um, was the first prescribing doctor in the United Kingdom to prescribe something called low-dose naltrexone. Now, naltrexone in the UK is given uh, to heroin addicts to stop them doping. But in the US uh, from 1981, a doctor called Dr. Bihari was prescribing for lots of different autoimmune conditions, including ME, MS, cancer, Crohn's disease and various other things. And the way the drug works, it's not given in the same dose as it's given to, given to heroin addicts. It's given in uh, smaller dosages of one milligram or 2.5 milligrams or 4.5 milligrams. And the idea of, of it is it basically increases the endorphins in the brain. And it tries to it tries to optimize the autoimmune system itself. So I was after this treatment, but I just couldn't get it off the NHS because my neurologist was like, I'm not prescribing it because I'll get struck off if I do. And my GP was just like, I'm not touching it as well. So this prescribing doctor in Wales was a doctor that prescribed it. 
And he goes, I can give you a prescription, but you'll need to find a pharmacy that can then dispense it. So I go, okay, you give me a prescription. It can't be that hard. Then I realized the reason he said that was because when I went to uh, Pharmacy A, Pharmacy A said, okay, we can do it. It's £5,000. Pharmacy B said, yep, we can do it. It's £3,000. Pharmacy C said it's going to be £2,000. But no pharmacy could really give me, every pharmacy was just coming up with prices that they felt like. And that's when I realized that because it was a private prescription, and at that time, this wasn't a drug tariff price prescription, they could charge what the hell they liked. And that's really um, what I tried to understand a bit better. Um, so just fast forward a bit on that. What I then did is develop the first private prescription tool that allowed my doctor in Swansea to send the prescription across to a pharmacy in Birmingham that my friend owed. And I was able to get the same treatment for £30 a month. Um, and that prescription was sent electronically. It's, they don't need to receive the original within 72 hours because it's a valid prescription. And that's really how the GP service started. And what we wanted to do was take that um, serve, take that technology and deploy that in other ways. And that kind of really is how it evolved um, into what it is today. Mm, amazing. Uh, like many entrepreneurs looking at themselves and trying to solve a problem that they're facing. Today, the digital prescription service, I assume that is integrated into the GP service or is it a standalone product? So the GP service started back in 2000. So in 2014 is when, when we built the prototype and got it going. Um, in 2016, we raised our first kind of institutional investment. It was our first round of funding. We raised two and a half million from Maven Capital Partners. And the idea of that was to uh, develop the system, develop the technology in a more robust infrastructure. Um, also, the idea is basically we were putting iPad devices inside every pharmacy consultation room. So what that basically allows patients to do is go into a pharmacy and see a doctor there and there. Because if you think about this, when you can't get an appointment with your GP, the next place you go is your pharmacy. So what we were doing is all these pharmacies that now have to have a consultation room by law, we were actually making value and use of them because now the patients can see a doctor in there. As soon as they've seen a doctor, electronically, instantly, a prescription is ready for the patient to collect. So that was how we kind of started as model one. Um, we then kind of evolved and now we white label um, the service for many providers out there, including Superdrug um, Co-op. Um, we also provide our prescription tool that's now available to over 5,000 pharmacies. That includes Boots, Tesco, uh, Superdrug Co-op and over 1,600 independent pharmacies. I think the one thing we did with our telemedicine solution that's different to anyone else out there is we connected that entire journey flow. So it's not broken that you just see a doctor from the patient's perspective. We connect the patient, the doctor and the pharmacy. But more importantly, we were the first private company in the country to gain access to the patient's NHS medical record, which is the summary care record, where our doctors in real time can actually check the record uh, to see what your NHS summary care record shows. And that's a big thing because that's really allowed us to scale the GP service to what it has become today. Quite a lot uh, throughout this podcast, you, you say we. Your co-founder is uh, Atul Devani. How, how did you meet him? So the story is, back in 2008 or nine, when I was looking to drop out of university, I went to this Midas Touch event. Um, Atul was sitting there as a dragon on the panel who had just sold his company, a, tele tele sorry, a, tele um, a telecoms business that sold for $290 million. So he's done quite well from it. Um, and he was sitting there on the panel and um, eventually we just touched base and he goes, oh, here's my card, get in touch. Um, I got in touch and it turned out that his in-laws live in Leicester and I'm in Leicester. Um, and after he became the first investor in 99P, um, we seen that through. 
He also sits uh, as a board advisor on a few VCTs as well. So he's quite he's quite successful in his own right. Um, but we've worked together for the last 15 years. We've invested in a number of businesses together. We've uh, we've started a number together. We've exited a few together. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's it, the relationship works really well. Uh, and that's really how, how we've kind of gone on board. You, you had the experience of the 99p shopper and, and also some other ventures. And you, of course, had some money in your back pocket from that. And then you went and raised some money. But you, I guess you never raised money before uh, the GP service. How did you even go about that? Yeah, that was interesting, actually. That's a very, 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 very valid question. I had not raised, I raised, I'd raised um, seed funding but I had never raised institutional funding. Um, so the, the interesting thing on this was in my early days of 99P, I'd already had connected to a lot of um, institutional investors just talking and keeping that relationship there. And I knew the team at Maven through Atul as it was anyway, and I've known them for a number of years, but it always goes back to people investing in people, never the idea. And it was when this idea came up and we'd taken it to Maven, for example, it was they were backing the management team and it wasn't the idea. So I think having that, I think it's about relationship building and that's such a big thing in anything you do in life because no matter what you do, um, people buy from people and people invest in people. And I don't think it was ever the idea they're invested in. It was really myself and Atwell they invested in. Now, of course, you, you, you're solving your own problem with the GP service and, and to some extent through through your own illness and, and um, kind of having to get a prescription from the States you had some knowledge or personal experience about the healthcare industry, but that, that, there's a long jump between having the personal experience and running a successful business like the GP service. How did you, did you ever consider that you, your knowledge about the healthcare industry potentially wasn't good enough? I always say that um, don't pretend to know something you don't. And if you don't know, seek for help. And I think what we did very early is as soon as we raised our first round of funding was bring the right people in. So we bought in a medical director. We bought in clinical expertise. We bought in a clinical director. We bought in a pharmacist. We bought all the experience in that you need to run such a business. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, it's been as successful as it has, because everyone's given their kind of own role and responsibility and in the areas that they're really good at. And I think that's what really makes a great team because you don't try and be a defender when you're a striker because you're not very good at it kind of thing. Um, and I think that's really what we've been able to achieve and grow quite rapidly um, in what we've done. And today, you know, we have a medical director, we have pharmacists, we have doctors, and that's all come together because I think we set the foundation very strong at the outset. So when you were at the 99P shopper, um, did you did you have any hires at that point? Did you hire a big team, small team during that process? Yeah. So if you think about it for a second, because the company got, when the company kind of started partnering with Palm and Harvey, that uh, Palm and Harvey were employing 4,000 employees. So we were given quite a large team. Um, so I had experience working and managing people. And that was a great starting point about, you know, different kind of personalities, different kind of uh, roles and responsibilities and the organizational charts and structures. So that was a good, good kind of starting point. So I think, uh, when it was the GP service and we had to do it ourselves from the hiring process and perspective, it was already, it was, it, it was, it was a good stepping stone, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So you launched GP service and you initially have some good investment, which definitely, of course, is going to help you hire some good people. Um, 
How did you find overcoming the barriers in the first year or so, especially in an industry which typically is quite slow to adopt technology? Very, very, very interesting question because I think it's come. It was, it was. We all, we all knew that um, seeing a doctor is an issue. You know, it takes about thirteen days to try and get an appointment, um, and it was always something that was going to happen. But it was when it's going to happen. I think COVID has probably tipped it over its edge, and now it's a norm. But prior to that, maybe it wasn't as norm as what it's become today. But I think it was one of those kind of um, good investments that and good concepts you come up with, knowing that you're probably seeing two years ahead, if that kind of makes sense. So you're there ready for it. And I think what we were able to do in that first kind of frame was build the infrastructure, get it all going, get it all right, and then really move ahead with that. But I think what we really did really well um, in that process, James, was really we built the infrastructure, but we we created some great partnerships. And I think that's what I learned from 99P, which was don't try and do it all yourself. Try and partner with people that have already got these expertise and these skills. So partnering with you know people like the co-op, for example, allowed us to provide a service immediately to get the revenue structures going, get that model going. So I think what we did was we have some very quick, early, big wins, if that makes sense. So we could focus on our own growth, um, even if it was a bit slow. And and starting the GB service almost seven years ago now, having such great foresight into the future. I mean, today, if somebody said, said to you, hey, Suleiman, I'm going to do the GP service, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That you know, it makes obvious sense to do that. But back in 2014, that just wasn't the case. How, how did you have kind of that forward vision that um, online access to to medical professionals was going to be such an impactful space? I guess I, I do like to think about what's going to happen. I always like to think what's going to happen in three, four years' time. Um, and I could see that, you know what, the current um, health service, um, you know, whilst the NHS does a fantastic job in what it's doing, you think about the NHS itself, they are still the biggest um, purchase of fax machines. If you ask the average kid now what a fax machine is, they don't even know what one is. So you can kind of see, I like to look at different markets and segments um, and where they're going to go. And it kind of, if you look at that very closely, you can kind of see that innovation is the next thing that's going to happen and things will continuously try um, innovate. And I think that's what, you know, the most successful entrepreneurs in the world, likes, the likes of uh, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates have really managed to do really well, which is they've managed to see ahead of time and not just what's going to happen tomorrow, if that kind of, if that, if that really is, you know, the process of innovation. Bringing on businesses such as the co-op that you've mentioned, that must have been pretty challenging. When when did they come on board? What we were able to do was strike these partnerships, but provide them with a solution to something that was a problem to them. And I think when you're doing that with any customer and you understand what their problem is and you're there to provide them with a solution, you can strike, you can strike, you know, really good partnerships very early. And I think that's one thing we really did really well and we continue to do well, which is really understand what our customers want. And from the back of that, really how we can help them with our expertise. And if we're not good at it, you just walk away and say we can't do it because you'd rather under promise and over deliver rather than over promise and under deliver. Um, as I said before, you, you've been going seven or so years. Have you, have you seen steady growth throughout that period of time or, or, or has it been ups and downs? Where we are, uh, we obviously any business, what model you start with and what you finish with is two different things. Uh, we are now, uh, our model now is very much, um, we are, we like I said, we white label the service for a number of um, big companies out there now. We provide the service as an employee benefit to a number of blue chip companies out there. 
um, as well as a prescription tool that I was using for myself is something where now we now allow other doctors and other providers to use to send electronic prescriptions across. So the business has scaled and changed quite, um, you know, rapidly. And hopefully, you know, we do we do plan on some there, there is hopefully some big plans over the next year or so. But the business has really scaled. And I think, you know, the scale is also what where the market is at the time. And it's one of those um, market segments and what the market wants to see. And you can kind of see that COVID has shown one thing now, which is we all want, when we want to see a healthcare professional, we don't want to go to the doctor's surgery now. We want to see people are happy to use technology and innovation now. And I think we're at the forefront of that because we started very early on in our journey. Yeah, you mentioned kind of commercial structures there. How has that changed for you across the years? And also, how are your revenues looking? I mean, I appreciate you're not going to give me exact numbers, but are you... What sort of figures are you looking at right now for the GP service? Sure. So I guess um, um, without without going into too much detail about revenue numbers and things, but uh, we are currently, um, our last round of funding was just under about 6 million uh, to date so far, last valuations. To biz- we, we, we assume now, you know, the business has got a, a, a very good valuation between 40 to 50 million. So you can kind of work it out between that of how well, well we are doing now. Um, and you can kind of see that because if you look at most telemedicine providers of other competitors that are out there, some have raised, some have obtained valuations of three, four billion. So and very early startups. So you can kind of see how the market and how the sector is doing itself. And the two or three that are left now, including ourselves, have picked up and uh, driving things quite well forward. Yeah, exactly. And that's it. You from from the start of the GP service, you were driving for change and now you're at the forefront of it. Um, the last year has been incredibly tough for the world and especially, of, of course, right here at home in the UK. Um, we're now having this conversation in uh, January 2021. How's it been for yourself, but also the business GP service over the last year? I think I think for me, it's been it's been very interesting because it's de- technology has definitely moved. And I think for myself, it's been really good because um I guess other than the GP service, I've been very fortunate to invest in uh, uh, another healthcare business that uh, also was a very manual process before them due to COVID. It's been able to innovate the structure and how things are working there as well. So I think technology is at the forefront of where we see things now. And I think that's really going to, it's going to rapidly take the pace that that's picked up on is going to continue at the pace it is. And, and I guess with the GP service specifically, over the last year, you've probably seen exponential growth of people picking up your service. Um, I think what we have seen is um, the market demand has increased substantially. And it's something we would not have probably thought of before. But I think it will continue to do so. Um, just because I think people are now people have now realized this is the way forward. Yeah, exactly. And I guess uh, just customer traits and people traits and the way they think about doctors has completely flipped on its head during during the last year. I think even for doctors, because I think if you speak to any doctor before COVID, they were quite you know reluctant on telemedicine. But now it's like it's the only way and they've become used to that now. Um, so I think I think the whole mindset's changed. And you were kind of predicting the future in a way in 2014. Now we're in 2021. Well, how do you see the next five years looking like for the for the sort of healthcare industry and I guess specifically general practitioners and the healthcare that the average person will see semi regularly? 
I think I think um, the way we see a doctor will change forever. I do think it will be moving more towards a mobile uh, telemedicine offering. Um, I also see that the way we receive medication and how that process will change quite substantially as well. I think I think altogether, I think the healthcare system will be more joined up um, from patient, doctor, and the pharmacy elements now. And I think that level of um, getting an if you think about if you think about availability and why people can't see a doctor for 13 14 days um i think uh, i think te- uh, technology takes all that away and i think it continue it will continue to do so mm, yeah it's really interesting uh, do, do you think uh, we're not too far away from drones delivering uh, prescriptions to our houses or do you think we're a bit of a long way off that yet I think still there's some work to do on that. I think we still got to understand it's not like it's uh, it's not like it's um, food and drink. This is medicine and healthcare. So I think there still needs to be a lot more research and work going into that. Um, I appreciate there's a lot of this AI discussions and a lot of AI robotic work going on in this sector itself. But I think it's uh, I think an AI solution is only how good the data you're feeding it in with as such. So I think there's still some work to do there. Um, but as far as technology goes, I think that's the first first part of it, where you'll see technology take a real pace of how the healthcare systems work. And then from there, we'll probably see more innovation. But I think the technology piece has to come in first before the innovation can happen. You uh, obviously set out with big plans. I think you pretty much were born with big plans. What, what's, uh, what, what did you set out to achieve with the GP service? And, and, are, you, and are you there yet? The plan was um, to give access to everyone uh, to be able to see a doctor within their within their pocket so they could pick up their phone and see a doctor. I think what we have done is given everyone in this country now that opportunity and availability. But I think we want to continue. We want to continue to provide the service. We want to continue to grow the markets and we want to continue to revolutionize the healthcare sector. I think there's still a lot of work to do. I think we've only kind of touched the touched the top of that. uh, And there's still some work to do on that. Uh, but I think there's still lots to do. I think, you know, we've got plans around, you know, testing, diagnostics um, and things like that. So there's a lot of work to do still. But we've at least we've made a start and we've made some good progress. Um, but there's still stuff we want to achieve and want to go for. You mentioned big plans for the next year. What, what's in store for the GP service? Um, without giving too much away, uh, we should see growth. Uh, we should see our growth scale quite dramatically. Um we should, you know, there, there's, we've got a lot of plans in place. And I think, you know, based on the foundations we've set, it's allowed us to try and achieve that now, which is as any entrepreneur, initially you're in the business, you're trying to grow the business. Uh, sorry, you're trying to drive the business forward and you're, you're doing every part of it. But I think we're now at the stage where we can try and grow the business rather than be in the business. And I think that helps substantially because it lets you take that to the next stage and the next next stage is growth. And that's for your investors um, and everyone else part of the journey with you. Yeah, exactly. And in terms of uh, barriers, what's the biggest barrier to your success at the GP service moving forward? Um, I think fortunately, you know, regulation is always a big thing when you're in healthcare. We are obviously a regulated organization. We have uh, we have a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes on that from a clinical medical side of that um, being compliance and things like that, really. I think um, as far as barriers go, I think it still continues. We'll see how things work out because we're not an NHS organization. We are a private service, so it is a charged paid service. Um, and I think it becomes more around, uh, you know, when you talk about barriers, it's about people's perception to pay for healthcare in this country. Um, I think it's getting better. Um, but I think we ourselves need to look at models of how we can help people 
um, try that and to, to give them that experience because I think if you, if you still ask people out there have used an online doctor service I think there's still a large proportion of people that probably haven't um, so I think it's still trying to get the message out there to the rest of the population. Mm, yeah exactly and obviously the more people that use your service um, the easier and quicker access they can get to healthcare professionals which is, exactly. is, is better for everyone. So far you've worked in a couple of organisations um, that you founded yourself, like the GP service and the 99P shopper. What do you mm -hmm. think your biggest professional break has been so far? My biggest professional break was, um, I still say this, is going to the Excel Centre that day, getting on a train for the first time in my life, going into London, networking and getting my first break of meeting someone that had actually been there done it and was then willing to come on as an investor and an advisor because without that i probably would still be running a lifestyle business uh, and i think having someone that's been there and done it for any entrepreneur even if it's just a, a bit of guide is it, you, you can't buy that it, it, it stops you making all the mistakes you save so many years and for me that's probably been my biggest professional break mm, yeah for sure and in terms of if you were looking at your yourself age 19 coming out of the doctor's surgery with you know bad news that no one really ever well, no one ever wants to receive what would you whisper in his ear today um i think it's more just you know what um i think i, I don't think there's anything to say to any other doctors or such but i think to anyone that gets you know bad news in life I think it's just very much you can only you can only do you can only go with what's in front of you and sitting there feeling sorry for yourself or thinking why me doesn't make the situation any better if you strive to achieve something or you strive to make a difference you will and I have a you know I've learned one thing which is the kind of five people you hang around with are probably you'll end up being one of those and I think that's really how my circles evolved um, and I think if you want to be successful you need to hang around with successful people you mentioned earlier yeah typically asian um parents often put quite a bit of pressure on their uh, offspring to go into certain professions i guess we all know the stereotypical assumptions yeah. of which careers they are yeah. um yeah. you went nope not interested in that but then somehow you've ended up in the healthcare sector yeah, I think I think you're very valid on your on your point there, and I think the reason for that mainly is because they I think the first generation may have had a shop or something like my own father, and they've realised that actually they've you know their terminology is we've been stuck in it and we've seen nothing else, so they really want their kids to achieve a profession where they can have a nine to five, um, and I think I think they try and drill that into them from a very young age, um, but then you kind of realise that you know you need to let them go and find their own feet, and I think. One thing I was fortunate to kind of have was allowed to find my own feet and and land on the ground myself, even if I fell flat a few times. But I think that's that's probably the big thing, which is you know what, even for parents, it is it's 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 only it's only a good thing to want your children to go into a certain profession. But at the end of the day, you've also got to probably let them try and find what they want to do because you never want them not to enjoy what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. And in terms of finding what you enjoy, obviously you went to university, you studied chemistry, probably just what you were good at at school, right? And then at uni for less than two years and go, not for me, I want to start my own business. Have you had fun ever since? Or has there been times when you go, God, I'm just not sure I could do this entrepreneurship thing? 
in all honesty, I think for the first two and a half years of starting 99p, um, I didn't know when I was going to earn my first pound because you realize that actually this isn't as simple as I thought it was going to be. And I think that's the real thing as an entrepreneur, which is if you're, if you're going to do this, it's not what you see on Instagram. It's not what you see on Facebook with all these fantastic cars and luxury lifestyle. It is a lonely journey and it is a journey of you don't know where your next paycheck is going to come from. And if you're willing to take that risk and you're willing to see that dark phase through, you will come out of that successful. But it is a very lonely journey and it's it's it takes a lot out of you. In 2018, you had been doing the GP service for a number of years, uh, around three, four years. You started another business, Care Hires. Tell me about that. Ah, you seem to know more about me than I know about myself. Okay, so um, Care Hires is an interesting business. So uh, my uh, a friend of mine, he owns about he owns quite a few care homes within Leicester. Uh, every time we used to go out and stuff. Um, he never he never complains about his business. It's a very successful business in its own right. And one of the days he came to me and he goes to me, you know what, I'm really cheesed off. I'm like, what's up? And he goes to me, the agency spend of staff, um, the amount we're spending on agency stuff is just ridiculous. Uh, there's got to be a better solution to this. So I just thought, you know what, let me understand this better. Let me understand the market size. Let me understand what's happening how does it work? And then I thought to myself, we could do something by applying technology again to innovate this market sector. So uh, we work together. Um, it's uh, very much uh, an Uber style application that allows care homes to post jobs, care workers to accept jobs. Uh, it's scale. We kind of launched it properly in March last year, raised some funding for it, and it's scaling up really fast. Um, and uh, quite excited about what that business is going to bring, to be honest. So you now have two businesses successful in their own right. How do you divide your time and which one takes priority? I think, I think it's having good people, to be honest. I think, um, I think I'm able to balance everything I do really well. Um, I think for me, it's very much about um, making sure I need to involve myself in areas that my expertise require me to. Um, but also having a good co-founder always helps in anything you do. Um, and I think that takes away a lot of the pressure. I think my side is mainly, you know, commercial and technology. That's what I'm good at and building technology teams and getting involved commercially to open up sales doors is what I'm really able to do. So I think I try and get involved myself more into that rather than the day to day operations. So then looking for a good co-founder, you're looking for industry experts and basically just trying to have the yin to your yang, I guess. I think that's important because even with Care Highs, if we think about it, when we raised our first round of funding, it's quite funny. I went to a local charity lunch and on that table was um, um, a gentleman by the name of Ian Mattioli, uh, who runs a large financial institution called Mattioli Woods in Leicester. Uh, and we just got talking. And after that, uh, we said we'll meet up for a coffee. And he ended up becoming the chairman and the first investor in Care Highs. So you just I can't you know what it's it's it, the you can't. You can't take away the power of networking and the power of relationship building because it's really, really critical. By the sounds that you've had some great success going to a number of different events and, and meetings, which have often turned into investment and great breaks for you. 
Exactly, exactly, exactly. I've been very fortunate, very fortunate with that as well. I'm very, very fortunate with that. Um, so touch wood, I think I think that, that's a key thing for me. I always say, you know what, two big lessons, never burn a bridge and always talk to people because you just never know where that conversation may go. Even if it's not today, it could be something that goes somewhere in five years' time. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't don't appreciate the amount of time successful entrepreneurs they have to just constantly put themselves out there, kind of making themselves probably feel a bit uncomfortable, but just constantly putting their own name on the line. Have you had probably quite a lot of experience with that? Yeah, I think you have to. I think you've got to lead from the front, really, and um, and you've got to be willing to do that. And uh, you don't just represent yourself; you represent your investors, you represent your company. Um, and I think, you know, you've got to be very confident in doing that. And if you do so, you'll see the results of that. And if you think about the most successful entrepreneurs we talk about today, uh, we link their name to their company. You know, if we talk about Tesla, we relate Elon Musk to them. If we talk about Apple, we relate Steve Jobs to them. If we talk about Microsoft, we relate Bill Gates. So I think it is very much leading from the front. Yeah, for sure. And then for yourself, is it a case of Suleiman Sakrani to the GP service? Is that what you want people to be thinking in, you know, five years time? Um, I think for me, it's very much, you know, how can I be someone that continues to innovate sectors and market sectors and spaces that I get involved in? And how can I moving forward, you know, continue that work? Um, and I think that's really what I enjoy, disrupting sectors and market sectors that have that are very manual in their processes. Yeah, um, awesome. So then what is next for you, like yourself? You mentioned you've invested in a number of different companies. Uh, are you looking to take a bit of a backseat into the near future? I think I think if you speak to any entrepreneur, we all love to say the word. We love to take a backseat, but it never quite happens because the drive and the brain never stops working and the restlessness just doesn't stop. So I think for me, it's very much, you know, there's a lot of work to do with the GP service. Love to continue with what we're doing there. Um, but in the future, who knows? Who knows what opportunities come up? And you know what? I, I don't try and write or predict what's going to happen because you just don't know. Uh, but the but the good thing is having conversations with people talking, you know, even though we're having a chat today. You just don't know what's going to come up in two, three years time. And as opportunities come, you take them head on. Mm, yeah, you're, you're using your, your own advice just by having a conversation with me today. Looking back at the period of time where you started the GP service and maybe even the 99p shopper as well. Can you remember that first customer who who bought your product or uh, used the yeah, GP service? I don't, I, I don't think you ever forget your first customer. I still remember the first order from 99p, you were waiting for it to come through and it was a a lady in Spain that ordered a box of more seasoning, and um, and uh, every time I go, to, every time uh, my mom goes shopping, uh, she brings back more seasoning and she leaves it there as a memory because uh, you know that you, you never forget your first customers. Oh, that's amazing! What a great touch from your mum. One, one one thing which I think is a very recurring topic of conversation around entrepreneurs, and that is in the early stages and even today, as successful entrepreneurs and business people in their own rights. Celebrating wins. What's, what's your opinion on celebrating the small things? Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that celebrating wins and, you know, and, and, you know, patting yourself on the back as you kind of go along. But I, I, I just look at the, you know, I just look at it from the end journey perspective, which is where do I want to take this and how do I get to that next milestone? And I think for myself, probably not great. And I wouldn't give this advice to anyone else, but I probably don't celebrate the small wins. I probably just want to crack on and get on with it. Um, but I think it's important to do so just because at least, you know, you're on the right path. But for me as an individual, I think I'm just like, let's just carry on what's next kind of thing. Mm, interesting. So then 
What is it that success looks like to you? Interesting question. I think it's being able to continue the work to do with the mission you're on. Um, and I think knowing that you're going, you're heading in the right direction towards that is always what is, is it really kind of gives you the output, what you're looking for. And, uh, and that's the satisfaction that probably, you know, any entrepreneur is looking for. The question I always like to ask is, do you think business growth is a mindset or something that can be learned along the way? No, I think it, I think it comes along along the way, to be honest. I think the journey takes you there. Um, I think any business that starts pivots to find its feet. And I think if you speak to any investor, the investor will always say to you, I never invest in the idea, I invest in the people. And the reason they say that is because the idea is just a part of it. Um, it may sound great on paper, but if you've, got, if you've got people that can't make it happen, it won't ever work. And you can have the worst idea in the world, but if you've got the right people, they'll change it into something. So I think you kind of find your feet as you go along. And I think it's persistence and um, tenacity that will take you there. That was Suleiman Sukrani of the GP service. His story is just that more compelling and incredible when coupled with the fact that he was fighting his own health battles and smashing through the world's perception of his own ambitions. In the end, his own personal drive led him to improving everyone's access to healthcare. As a business person, he expresses how the right people in life and business are essential to the lonely journey of entrepreneurship. The GP service continues to grow and this past year won the Santander Technology of the Year Award. Suleiman dedicated that particular award to his team, but also won the IOD Young Director Award and Entrepreneur of the Year from the Growing Business Award in 2020. A very humble man who has the great purpose of changing the face of healthcare using technology to give access to those in need. If you want to find out more about Suleiman, head to the gpservice.uk or find him on LinkedIn and give him a follow. Thank you so much for listening to today's show of Growth in Mind. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can get in touch with us about product and marketing services at airbyte.uk. This week's episode was produced by Alexi Buckingham with music by Ten Hands High. I am James Farnfield and you've been listening to Growth in Mind.